I just don't know anything about community programs. So I, I didn't even know there were community programs. I was like, well, let's talk about that a little bit. I had no idea. Casters and welcome to a little WeMig, a mini episode, number 25.5, if you will. After listening to episode number 25 on counting away rotations, third-year medical student and EMIG cast contributor Jonathan, or Jolly Rigetti, as we like to call him, had some extra questions about away rotations, so I brought him on the show via Skype to get those questions answered. But first, I wanted to start with a story, since uh, Nicholas didn't have the chance to give us a really good case from his away rotation when we interviewed him last time. He thought a little bit further and has a good story to kick it off, and then you can jump uh, past that if you want to just get to the questions, but I think you'll like this one. So one thing to remember about county patients, again, is that most of the time they're either underinsured, uninsured, or generally don't see a physician on a regular basis. So when you get patients like this, they're often not going to be in the best socioeconomic circumstances, which often means that you're not going to have a lot of information prior to them hitting your door in the emergency department. Or they may be involved in or a victim of violent or criminal activity, which we know runs at higher rates in a lot of these lower socioeconomic areas. I remember looking at an x-ray while I was at Maricopa County that was a patient that had got shot with a shotgun while running with scissors. And the scissors and all the shotgun pellets were lodged in his chest. Now, I'm not saying you won't see something like that at an academic center, but this is kind of the stuff that you see at county hospitals very often. Now let's jump back to questions from Jolly about away rotations. Jolly was kind enough to join us via Skype from Enterprise, Oregon, at the foot of the Wallawa Mountains, where he's currently delivering babies while rotating on family medicine. Here's Jolly. All right, Jolly, thanks for joining us on the show today. I hear that you uh, worked your way through our last podcast, but still had some additional questions for um, Alex, Nick, or, or whoever we can get on there. What What do you have for us? Uh, well, yeah, well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It was a really good episode that they and uh, and that you put on. So one question that I had, uh, that I had was that they both did uh, away sub-eyes after they did a sub-eye at their home institution, and I was just curious um, – what the advantages and disadvantages were to doing that? I've heard that a lot of people like to do an away rotation, you know, after their home institution, so that they can stand out a little bit better on their away rotation. I'm wondering if it's more important to shine at the away rotation, and what are the advantages or disadvantages of doing it in that order, uh, keeping in mind that some students uh, don't have the ability to do that given the, the constraints on our schedule. To answer this question, we brought in Dr. Nelson, one of our favorite contributors to EMIGCAST. You might remember Dr. Nelson from the episode on VSAS, episode number 23. Dr. Nelson is a doctor doctor, or an MD-PhD, who trained at the University of Colorado in Denver. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at OHSU and the director of medical student education in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Here's Dr. Nelson on the order of emergency medicine sub-eyes. Yeah, I would say if the students schedule forces them to do it the other way around. It's totally fine. Students do it that way. And I 
down, he's a, has negative consequences. I think that students feel more comfortable at their home institution and they feel like they know kind of like the systems challenges a little bit better. And so they can really develop kind of their, their ability to be in the emergency department and like present the way that we're expecting them to present and like develop a little bit of efficiency and those sorts of things better when they're not worried about like where's the bathroom and like no none of these people know me and I've never used this electronic medical record before and all of those other things that like you know at your home institution in general and so I think that people like to do their home institution first because they feel like they've got a little bit of emergency medicine under their belt and then they can do that much better on their way that being said people do it the other way around and do just fine so either way. So one thing that's never come up when, with regards to uh, a way sub eyes is who's actually writing your letter of recommendation. So who actually writes your letter of recommendation when you're on these sub eyes? Do you actually know who's writing it ahead of time? And uh, what recommendations do you have for students um, to get a little bit more face time in front of the people that are actually writing this letter um, in order to make our letter stand out as, as something that's unique and, and that a program would actually want. Yeah. So this is challenging um, because every institution writes the slow differently. So there's a section on the slow that says written by basically. And then there's a, like 10 different categories. So you can either put your, your name, if it's written by a single individual, you can put that it's written by the program director and their name, it's written by the clerkship director and their name, or you can do like any combination of a bazillion things, such as like a consensus evaluation by all the department faculty as documented by the clerkship director. So for example, OHSU, I write every single one of them, but I write them based on the consensus evaluations that are obtained from all of the faculty members that work with all with with the student on their particular rotation so um so who it's like physically written by and then who it's representing can be like two different things and hopefully on the slow that is apparent so that when people are reading them they know whether this is like a consensus evaluation or just um I worked with Josh Hornigy multiple times during the rotation and asked him and he wrote based on his only his opinion, which I think carries a different weight than it does if it's like a consensus evaluation. So that's one part of the question. The other part of the question in terms of like, do you need to suck up to whoever is writing the slow, you know? So that really varies. It, it varies in terms of, so I, I write the slows at OHSU. I don't work with every single medical student who comes through my department because I, um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, don't work that many um, shifts in order to make that happen. So um, so I rely on other people's information, you know, and, and I think that students sometimes feel like, oh my God, I didn't work with her. Like, am I going to be at a disadvantage? And I would say no, because there are other ways that I get to know the students on the rotation, even if I don't work directly with them in the clinical environment, whether it's doing the simulations or doing their oral board exams or whatever the case may be. And every place around the country has this set up differently. I think it's completely reasonable to ask who writes the slow and how is that done? I think that's fine. Some places 
other places that I know of specifically, you're assigned like a faculty mentor during the rotation, and that is going to be the person who writes the slow for the for the block. And so in that case, you're usually assigned to work with that person like a couple of times so that they can kind of develop their own like mini consensus evaluation of like how you're doing. The other aspect of your question where you were like, or do you just have to perform really well the entire time that you're there? The answer to that, unfortunately, is yes, because emergency medicine like departments, we're all like very close. We like each other. Like we talk outside of that. So even if that person doesn't fill out an evaluation, like stuff gets back to whoever's writing the slows because the department knows how it works. And so you do need to do really well on all of your clinical time in the department, because even if the slow is written by a single person and you work a single shift with that person, you know, if you deeply offend somebody else, it will get back to them. If that makes sense. I don't know. Some places, Whoever writes the slow makes a point of trying to sit down with each of the students, even if it's just for like 10 minutes, to know who they are before they sit down and write the slow as well and just get some general information about them. So that kind of helps to make it a little bit more personal, but yeah. So with the VSAS opening in January, it seems like medical students are really forced to enter into the emergency path uh, earlier and earlier. Um, before we've even had rotations and other specialties. What would your advice be for someone, say a third-year student, who's not necessarily completely set on emergency medicine, but also you know, knows that the VSAS is opening in January and these spots can become competitive? Um, a lot of medical students are still up in the air in their third year uh, considering multiple specialties, but kind of feel like they have to cover multiple bases at once for the September deadline for residency applications. Yeah, so unfortunately, the away rotations are fairly competitive to get because there are a limited number of them, and there are a lot of students that are either committed to emergency medicine or considering emergency medicine. And so there, it certainly happens that people apply to rotations, that they end up deciding either I don't want to do emergency medicine at all or I actually have no interest in going to location X and doing the, the rotation. And so you can apply to them and cancel the application at any time point. If you're if you're thinking you might go into EM, you apply to VSAS, you even accept in a way, and then you do your home institution rotation and decide, okay, maybe not, I would prefer to do anesthesia or something, which is a common one, then I would just, as soon as you figure that out, call and cancel the rotation. But nobody's going to hold that against you. Like we we want just as much as the students want to figure out the perfect specialty for them. And so it, it absolutely happens every year that there's somebody who thinks EM is the thing for me and then decides not. And that's totally fine. Do you feel like when medical students apply to residency uh, and submit their letters of recommendation that different communities' letters are weighted differently? In other words, does a letter from Highland or Hannapin uh, go a lot further than a letter from, say, Maricopa or a different community program or vice versa? Slows do have different weight from different places. Places that have a lot of medical students who rotate through that department and the places that have somebody who is writing 50 slows a year, 25 slows a year, is very different than a place where somebody's writing two or three, right? Because just the the breadth of experience that they have is quite different. So that is the case, but you can shine in any of those 
situations, I think, can get a very strong slow. If you rotate at a place that is like an academic emergency medicine institution and they have faculty members who are routinely writing slows, then I wouldn't worry about it. And there's a bazillion of those around the country. So I don't think it matters too much. I think some people think, oh, I should go to you know, one of the best-named top programs, and I should get a slow written by, like, the chair or a slow written by the program director and that that will carry more weight. And I would say I love my program director and chair and everything, but I don't think it carries any more weight because they may and probably don't write nearly as many slows as the clerkship director who's writing them. And every year, I mean, we see the same names on all of the slows. So we we get to know, it's a very small world, we get to know like what we're going to get from Institution X in general and kind of what the spread is and that sort of thing. And so I think students put a lot of weight in the name of the person who's writing them and they probably should not. Awesome stuff there from Jonathan and Dr. Nelson really getting into the weeds, but in a way that answers some of the questions that a lot of folks are kind of afraid to ask. To wrap up this episode, we have a couple more questions from Jonathan that Nicholas Robbins was kind enough to answer for us. Here's Jolly again. You both talked extensively about county and academic programs. I heard you briefly mention community programs. Can you just talk a little bit about community programs, maybe advantages and disadvantages of those? And if you are considering applying to them, um, which community programs did you find most appealing and why? So, yeah, there is another type of program, which would be a community program, which I'd probably say, and I don't know this to be exact, there's probably less of those than there is of the county and academic programs. But they're going to have things that may be a little unique to them as well. Since they're a community program, lots of those are ran by physician groups and not actual physicians that are employees of the county or the academic hospital. So there may be opportunities to grow or at least get a foot in with that group if you're interested in practicing in that area. They also might have different resources that you might not see at a academic or county hospital. And they may or may not be involved in their metrics a lot more. Efficiency is very important in a community hospital. Um, you know, typically there's a lot more eyes on the productivity because at the end of the day, you may get a little more exposure to the business aspect of medicine at a community hospital than you might at a county and or academic institution. Not to say that you wouldn't at those other locations, but there may be more eyes on that type of stuff at a community hospital. Additionally, at a community hospital, you might find that there's less residency programs to compete with. So you may get more opportunities for procedures, but you also have more responsibility as far as things that need to be done because you might not have support, for instance, from ortho to come down and cast or reduce a dislocation. That might be something that you need to do yourself at 
those type of places. Community hospitals might also be hard to spot initially because they may have an affiliation with an academic institution. For example, Riverside Community Hospital in Southern California is loosely affiliated with UC Riverside, um, but it's actually a community hospital it's their own residency program, and it's not a direct program from the medical school. I think it's important to know that 80 to 90% or maybe even more of physicians will end up practicing in a community setting. So looking for these opportunities to maybe rotate or interview at a community site might be a good option for a lot of people as well. Uh, another question I had was regarding scheduling. I was just curious, like, was this a five-day-a-week, six-day-a-week schedule, and is it only patient care, or are there conferences and presentations and other assignments that you have to do similar to a medical school rotation, or is a sub-I just patient care, and, you know, can you expect to work six or seven days a week on these sub-I's? So the scheduling for an emergency medicine sub-I is much like you would expect for an actual resident. It's typically 15 to maybe 18 shifts a month. You're going to attend the didactic conferences with the residents, and you're going to work a mix of morning shifts, swing shifts, overnight shifts, just like you would expect to do as an intern second or third year. As far as other projects that go on, Typically, you're going to need to do a presentation. I found that with both my sub-I's that I had a presentation that was due at the end of the sub-I and that there's an exam that typically goes with the rotation as well. It could be a mix of a written exam and or an oral board style exam as well. I'd say if you're looking for a sub-I where you're going to work six or seven days out of the week, you could probably ask some of the surgery applicants. They may know more about that than I would. Zing! Alright, that's it for another eMigCast. I'm your host, Patrick Fink. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes, leave comments on eMigCast.com, or find us on Twitter at eMigCastOHSU. You can subscribe to the podcast using the podcast app on your smartphone, and if you can't figure out how to do that, then ask a millennial to help you. Thanks to Dr. Anna Nelson and to Jonathan Rigetti for joining us by Skype, to Nicholas Robbins for contributing answers and reminding us not to run with scissors. Today's theme music was composed for EMIGCast by Nathan Fink. Thanks for listening to EMIGCast.com. This podcast represents only the views of its producers and does not represent the views of OHSU or any affiliated institutions. And while we make every effort to broadcast correct information, we're still learning and we ask that our audiences keep in mind that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, who we'd like to thank for their continuing support. We do not accept money from any other sources. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.